Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. Praise God. Praise God. It's great to see everyone this morning. Uh, if it's your first time coming back into the building, I really want to give you a warm welcome this morning. It's really great to see you. Everyone that's watching at home this morning, I want to give you a huge welcome as well. Let's just pray as we come to the word. I believe God has much to say to us this morning. So let's just ready our hearts. And Father, we just pray right now that you would come in with fresh wind of revelation, Lord God. We open our hearts to you right now, Lord, and say, Lord, pour in fresh revelation of who you are this morning. Let us see you afresh in all of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. Well, as Rich mentioned, we're starting a new um, mini-series, a new teaching series this morning, which I'm really excited about, called Red Letter Days. And... um, The significance is that we're going to be speaking from um, the letters in Revelation of Jesus to his churches. And I'm sure, like many of you, um, your Bibles have the red letters for the words of Christ. And here we have this direct uh, instruction to the church from the risen, glorified Christ. And it's a fantastic thing that we have. You know, over the last year, we've seen so much change take place in the world. We've seen so much change take place in our own lives. It's been a time of great upheaval. And there's lots of talk, there's lots of discussion about what the new normal looks like and what um, life will be like as we go forward from here. And a lot of that change is being driven by social change. It's being driven by accommodating uh, the COVID-19 virus. But it's really important for us as the house of God that the changes that we consider as we go into a new season are driven by what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. We need to be those that are not being shaped by the world, but are being shaped by the Spirit so that we can be the church that he needs us to be for the world around us. So one of the reasons we wanted to look at these letters is because Jesus speaks directly to the church, and in each case there is the common refrain, if anyone has ears to hear, let him listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And now more than ever, we need to be those who are listening to what the Spirit is saying to us. So if you've got your Bibles with you, just turn to Revelation 1. I'm going to read just a few verses. We are going to do a whistle-stop tour this morning of the churches in Revelation. And I want to read just a few verses just before we get into it. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then if you just go down to verse 11... The instruction is this, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So we have what we believe to be the Apostle John. John is most likely the John that's being referred to here. He was, as far as we know, the longest living apostle This, um, the book of Revelation was written sometime between the mid-80s and the mid-90s AD. So John is a very old man at this point. We believe he survived all the other apostles uh, in the early church. 
and it can be seen as a book that speaks about future things. A lot of people avoid the book of Revelation because it seems to be a book about lots of stuff about the future that we don't understand. But actually, there's a blessing for us in the first few verses that blessed is he who's, who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So we mustn't neglect what's in here. And the book of Revelation speaks not just to the generation it was written to. It doesn't speak just to some future generation. It speaks to every generation of the church. And that's why it's really important for us to spend time in the book of Revelation and ask the Lord to speak to us. Broadly speaking, it has a revelation of Jesus Christ. They're the opening words. And in the first chapter, we've got this wonderful revelation of the risen Christ, which Rich read that description. Now, John is a man who knew Jesus, who was his best friend, who loved him dearly, and yet John saw this person, this resurrected Jesus, and fell at his feet, probably scared witless at what he saw, because Jesus glorified was so magnificent. And then in in the chapters 2 and 3, we have a revelation of his church, which is what we're going to look at this morning. And then in chapters 4 through 22, we have really an unfolding revelation of the kingdom of God. So the book of Revelation is a revelation of Christ, his church, and his kingdom. And that's what Revelation is all about. Now I'm going to turn to a map which hopefully is going to be up. There we go. So we've got a map that you can see up above you there to give you some idea of the geography we're talking about. I don't know if you can see um, those places, but all of these places are on this map. This is what was known as Asia Minor. It's now called modern Turkey. It's not called modern Turkey. It's called Turkey, as it goes. Um, But in our house, we call it modern Turkey. And um, you can see on the map, you can see that the the places that are named are pretty much in the order that you would travel from these places. They were 50, 100 miles apart apiece. And a messenger that would be taking a letter would be going from church to church, almost in this order. And um, so what I want to do this morning is take, take a sort of a tour, if you like, of these churches. There's lots of theories about why... Jesus sent these letters to his church. Some people believe that he was warning them about things that were about to come. Some people believe that he was warning them about the very last days, and that's all Revelation is about. Some people believe that each church represented a different era in the history of the church, from the end of the apostolic age through an age of persecution, an age of patronage under Rome, an age of corruption in the Dark Ages, an age of restoration, And then an age of evangelicalism, where the gospel was spread, through to an age of apostasy. There's lots of different theories. What it really talks to us about is Christ, his church, and his kingdom. And what's important for us to understand is that in order for us to mature, we have to go through a process of being commended by Christ for what we're doing, but also to change to be the church he wants us to be. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. And um, the formula for each of these letters you'll see is, first of all, the church addressed is named. Then there is Christ's title, or the description of who he is, which picks up the language that we've rich read from in chapter 1 about the risen Christ. And then there's the commendation, not to every church, but to some of them. There's a commendation of what they're doing well. And then there is Christ's complaint And then there is his counsel to them. This is how I want you to change. And when you read through this, one of the things that is striking is that in each case, the letter, the church addressed, the problem with the church is always linked to the description that Christ gives of himself, an aspect of his nature of the risen Christ. 
And really, the important thing for us there is this. Whatever needs to change in the church, Christ is all that's needed for that to happen. He never asks something of us that he isn't to us already. In other words, everything that you need to do, everything you need to become, you'll find all of that in me. And I can change you, and I can mold you, and I can shape you if you'll be willing. And that's the overarching message that I really want us to come away with as we take this whistle-stop tour through the churches. So let's start with Ephesus. Now, Ephesus um, was commended for their works, their toil, and their patience. You'll see in verse 2, chapter 2, he commends them for those things. But the problem in Ephesus was that they'd lost their first love. And what's striking is, when you look at the letter to the Thessalonians, when Paul writes to them, he commends them for the three same things. But there's a distinction in how he describes them. Paul says this, he was commending them for the work produced by faith, their labor, which was prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. Now you notice there's a difference there. To the church in Ephesus, he just talks about their works, their toil, and their patience. And without love, without the love of Christ being the seedbed of everything that we do, the work is no longer produced by faith, the labor is no longer prompted by love, it just becomes toil. And hope simply becomes patience. And that was the problem in Ephesus. They'd walked away from their first love. In in actual fact, Jesus says in verse 4 that they had abandoned their first love, which is striking, isn't it? They'd abandoned their first love. You know, you don't just abandon love, you neglect love. And when you neglect love, that eventually turns into willful neglect. And willful neglect turns into abandonment. It's a process that happens slowly. I've been thinking recently what first love actually means because love grows, doesn't it? Is Jesus saying, I want you to be those that are always feeling the way you did when you first came to me, when you first were born again? Can you remember that feeling? When you first knew him, when you first had those pangs of love in your heart for Jesus. And we could be reading this to say, well, Jesus wants us to feel like that all the time. But any of you that know the experience of love, know that love isn't like that. Love changes. For those of you that are married, you know that love changes. You know, it's been my privilege to be married this year for 25 years to my wife, Ellie. Now, when we first met, I was 19. So needless to say, I was not fully formed as an individual. (laughs) Ellie did not really know what she was getting with this package. But 25 years later, she loves me, despite the fact she really knows what she's got. (laughs) So love has changed. Love has deepened. We know each other much better now, and we're still getting to know each other. And so first love just doesn't mean those first pangs of love. It means a love that's ever fresh. It means like a stream of water that's constantly flowing every day with a fresh experience of love. The psalmist said that we are like trees planted by streams of living water. You know, and if water is not flowing, it becomes stagnant. And that's what had happened at Ephesus. The love had become stagnant. They were just going through the motions. So Jesus, how does he describe himself? He says, I'm the one who walks among the golden lampstands. The golden lampstands are the seven churches. And Jesus wants to be amongst us, and he wants to pour his love into us afresh every single day so that we have a fresh experience of his love, a deeper experience of his love, 
And that becomes the motivation for literally everything that we do. When it stops becoming the, mo the motivation, all we're doing is working, we're toiling, and having to be patient. And that was the problem in Ephesus. So he wanted to walk amongst them and have fellowship with them. Now, the next place we go to is Smyrna. So for Smyrna, what he wanted them to be was faithful unto death. I, I feel kind of sorry for Smyrna when you read the description. Smyrna are commended. He commends them for going through what they do and being faithful in it. They weren't a rich people. In fact, they were in poverty. But then Jesus says, but you are rich. And I think we have to be really careful that we don't equate physical prosperity with spiritual riches. Sometimes they go together, but they don't always go together. And there are Christians across this planet that are in difficult times, but Christ would look at them and say, you are rich. And this church, he said, you will be going through persecution. In fact, Jesus was really specific that some of them were going to be thrown into jail and they were going to suffer persecution. How did he address this? How did he describe himself? He said, I'm the one who died and has come to life. I'm the one who has experienced resurrection life. And what you're going to need is resurrection life to face some of the things that are going to come your way. Jesus said to them in John's Gospel, 1633, that we will have trouble in this world. I don't know whether someone warned you about that when you got saved. Nobody told me. I'd already signed up. And then I read it in the Word. We will have trouble in this world because there is always an enemy and an opposition to the kingdom of God. But Jesus says, don't fear because I have overcome the world. And Jesus overcame the world through laying down his life. And that is how we will overcome trouble that comes against us, by laying down our lives and coming into the same power of resurrection life. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul said this, he said, I want to know Jesus I want to know him in the power of his death and to somehow attain a resurrection of the dead. Now, Paul wasn't talking about a physical death. He was on about death of self. He was on about denying himself for others and coming into the power of doing that. Jesus demonstrated that for us in spades, didn't he? It was his self-denial that allowed him to triumph over the enemy. And actually, just a few chapters later in Revelation 12 and verse 11, it says that the saints of God overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of the testimony, the word of their testimony, and because they love not their lives unto the death. So often I've heard people quote the first two elements of that verse, because the third element is not that popular, is it? We want to hear about the blood of the Lamb. We want to hear about the word of testimony. But we're not too keen about loving our lives unto the death and denying ourselves. But that's the power. Now, that sounds dramatic. That sounds like martyrdom. You know, most Christians are not called to martyrdom, not at this time. But what we are called to do is to deny ourselves. And loving not your life unto the death starts with little deaths when you put others before yourself. And that's why Paul starts the second chapter of Philippians when he talks of, in that great, those great terms of Jesus coming down and taking those steps down into humanity and death and dying for our sins and being raised by the Spirit of God and being given the name above every other name. He starts that chapter by saying, consider each other more worthy of honor than yourself. Put others before yourself all the time. 
And when the church does that, it will have a power that can overcome anything in this world. Let's go to Pergamum. What did Jesus require of Pergamum? That they would be faithful with God's word. The problem in Pergamum is he says they held fast to his name, but they weren't holding fast to the word of God. They were tolerating false teaching in Pergamum. Jesus talks about the sin of Balaam. Now, we heard about Balaam. Do you remember Rich preached a fantastic message on Balaam when we went through the book of Numbers? The problem in his case is that he tried to prophesy against God's people, and he couldn't do it because he kept prophesying good things, and he couldn't come against them in the way that someone had paid him to do. So what did he do? Instead, he told Israel's enemies another way to defeat them, which was to get them to abandon the rules and the truth that they'd been given by God, to abandon the principles God had laid down so that they instead would let the enemy in. And that's what happens when we step away from the truth of God's word. In today's age, there are lots of places where it is convenient to step away from what the word says because the word is increasingly contradicting the way the world wants to live. And the easy thing to do is to say, well, okay, well, let's skip over that bit and let's skip over this bit and let's not mention that bit because that causes problems. In fact, let's change what we teach so that it's inoffensive to those outside. And Ephesus, sorry, Pergamum had that problem, is that they tolerated false teaching. They tolerated those who wanted to take things out of the word that were unpopular. How does Jesus describe himself? He's the one with a two-edged sword. In fact, in the description Rich read from chapter 1, it said, the two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. That's the word of God. The unbending, unchanging word of God. It's unchanging just like Jesus is unchanging. Paul warns the Thessalonians when he writes to them about a deception that could come upon believers. And he said, it will only come upon those who do not have a love of the truth. And we need to love God's word more than we love being popular, more than we love fitting in with what others may say, whatever they say. What's interesting is that description in chapter 1, Jesus, his voice is described as like rushing waters. And so you've got this picture of of, of the sword of the word of God coming out of his mouth. I don't know what that looks like, by the way, but it must have been awesome. And at the same time, the sound of rushing waters coming out. You know, when you go all the way through to chapter 19 and God's redeemed people are described, you know what it says about them? that they gave glory to God and the sound of their voices was like rushing waters. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said that he wanted the word of God to dwell richly in them. And if this word dwells richly in us, then the word of God will always come out. We will always speak the truth of God's word. Because Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So how do we safeguard against false teaching? We need to know the word, each one of us. We need to speak the word over one another all the time. And it will safeguard us. Next church is Theatira. 
What did Jesus want from them? Well, he wanted them to be faithful to God's holiness. The problem with Theatira is they compromise morally and they'd allowed moral corruption to come into the church. We don't know whether there was a, a specific prophetess that Jesus describes as Jezebel, a false prophetess, or whether it was the spirit of Jezebel. But we know that Jezebel in the Old Testament persuaded Ahab, her husband Ahab, King Ahab, to allow worship of the prophets of, through the prophets of Baal and through God's prophets, and allowed that mixture to come into God's people that ended up in moral decline. How does Jesus describe himself? Eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. You know, nothing is hidden from Christ. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. In my life, in your life, in his church, everything is seen. And what God wants us to be is a pure people. Pure and holy. That becomes increasingly difficult to do in an increasingly impure world. We stand out in stark contrast to the world around us. He's coming back, folks, for a pure bride, for a pure church. Now, before we start to think, does that mean I can't make a mistake? No, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about perfect people, but we're talking about pure and holy people who are living day by day, washed by the blood of the Lamb and keeping themselves pure. And let me say this, pure does not mean prudish. Pure does not mean prudish. Jesus was pure, but he wasn't prudish. He was happy to be around sinners. He was happy to be around those who sinned, but he remained pure. And he didn't become desensitized to sin. And the challenge for the church today is that we can become desensitized to sin because we think to be sensitive to sin is prudish about sin and they're not the same thing at all we can have the aversion to sin that God has as we become more like him but what goes hand in hand with that is a love for this world see that's why Jesus didn't mind being around sinners because he, he hated the sin but he loved the sinner and we need to be the same as his people those who embrace those who have unrighteousness in their life has sinfulness but we love them with the love of God. But we don't become desensitized to sin itself. And then fifthly, we get to the church in Sardis. Jesus required of them to be full of the Holy Spirit. What's amazing for me in this description about Sardis, this is the beginning of chapter 3, is that they had a reputation of being a lively church. Does that sound familiar? When people talk about churches, it's fantastic there. There's loads going on. It's the place to be. But Jesus' assessment is that they were on the verge of death. People say you're alive, but you're not. In fact, he says, repent now why there's still some life in you. That seems such a shocking and damning assessment. But what it means is this. What we mustn't become is a church who are just organizing things like programs. The programs don't make the church. We can organize things that look great on paper, that sound great. 
but actually they are devoid of the life of the Spirit. Because lots of things like that you can do without the Holy Spirit. And that needs to be our litmus test. In everything that we do together as God's people, in everything we involve ourselves with, the activities that we involve ourselves, we need to say this, do we need the Holy Spirit to do that? Because if you can do it without the Holy Spirit, then something is wrong. Everything needs to have the life of the Spirit at the heart of the activity. Do you understand? Otherwise, we just become a place that has a great reputation, but when Jesus looks on us, there can be a lack of life. Now, I know that's not us. I know the life of the Spirit is freely flowing amongst us. But we need to be those who have the Spirit amongst us. And Jesus said this, describing himself. He said he is the one who has the sevenfold Spirit of God and the seven stars. Some of your translations will say seven spirits of God. Sevenfold spirit is the NLT. And I really love that rendering because it harks back to Isaiah 11 where the Holy Spirit is described of seven characteristics of the spirit. And so I believe he's not talking about seven spirits, but he's talking about a sevenfold, a complete revelation of who the Holy Spirit is. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who brings the spirit. I'm the one who has the Holy Spirit. I'm the one that brings that life to you. And I need you to be the people who have the life of the Spirit before anything else. That your reputation is not busy programs, is not a slick presentation, but those people are full of spiritual life. And you know it as soon as you meet them, everyone is full of the Holy Spirit. That's the reputation Jesus wants for his church. Next on our tour is Philadelphia. What Jesus saw in Philadelphia and what he wants of his church is a fullness of love that opens doors. Many of you will know that Philadelphia, it means brotherly love. It means literally one who loves his brother. And like Smyrna, they were facing opposition, probably from some of it from uh, Jews in the area that were opposing them. And they were facing doors that were shut in their face wherever they went. But Jesus saw that the love of God was amongst them. And he said, look, I am the one, the way he describes himself is, I'm the one who holds the key. I hold the key of David. I'm the one that opens doors that are shut and shut doors that are open. And I believe Jesus is looking at them and saying, it's my love that will open doors for you. So he talks about those that stand in opposition to them. And he he says, I will bring them and cause them to bow down and he says and I will show them that I have loved you in other words those that are coming to oppose you Philadelphia I'm going to show them how much I love you and I'm going to show them that love because they're going to see it amongst you and when they see my love going from one to another that is what will cause your enemies to come to their knees and I believe that the love of Christ that is freely flowing in the church of Christ is the thing that will open doors of opposition. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, by the love of Christ. God's love can open shut doors. And as Anna said to us a few months ago, the risen Christ can walk through walls and can walk through doors that are shut. And he'll take us with him into places that are shut out. And lastly on our tour, we have 
Laodicea. Man, Laodicea. <laughs> I'm really glad I didn't live there. He wanted Laodicea to be a faithful witness. The problem is that they were lukewarm. I guess in modern parlance, you might say, meh, whatever that means. <laughs> How was Laodicea today? I heard you visited. Meh. It was all right. They were neither one thing nor the other. And that was the problem. What's amazing is Jesus looks at them and says, look, you're neither hot nor cold. I'd rather you were one or the other. How bad are things when Jesus said, I'd rather you oppose me. I'd rather you were my enemy than what you are right now. Because you are a witness to me in that place. But you're no witness at all. You make no impact at all on the community in which you live. You're inoffensive. Nobody's bothered about the church in Laodicea. They weren't suffering persecution. They didn't bother anybody because they were lukewarm. Jesus describes himself as the faithful and true witness. In fact, he talks about himself being um, the witness of creation. We often talk about Jesus being um, at the beginning of creation and God making all things through Christ and for Christ. But Jesus was actually the witness to creation as well. He's a witness to God's purpose. So when he stood before Pilate, he said, I've been sent here to be a witness to the truth. Because this world is based on a lie. And I've come from God to be a witness to the truth. And then when he was getting ready to be taken up into heaven, he says to his disciples, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit on you so that you may be my witnesses of the same truth. And we won't do that by being lukewarm, by being half-hearted. We need to be those that are on fire all of the time. That when people meet us, they have... They will never walk away wondering what we stand for. I think we can be good witnesses for Christ by just being full of the Holy Spirit. But not allowing lukewarmness, tepidness to come into our daily life. So that's a whistle-stop tour. We'll have time to unpack and to go back and to look at these churches but what it, what it shows for me is this revelation of the church through a revelation of Christ. We've got these seven churches, seven descriptions, and in each case, Jesus reveals an aspect of himself because everything that's needed to address the problem is found in him. Ephesus needed to show that they were loved by him. They needed to experience his love. And Jesus is loved by the Father. The church needed to be faithful unto death. Jesus came and laid down his life. Pergamum, he said, you need to be true to my word. And Jesus upholds all things by the power of his word. Thyatira needed to be pure in all things. And Jesus was without sin. When we get to Sardis, Jesus is saying, you need to be alive with my Holy Spirit. You need to be full of the Spirit. Jesus was raised, Paul says to the Romans, to newness of life. 
And because we've been baptized into his death, we can live in newness of life. Philadelphia. Philadelphia needed to be loving each other and showing the world the love of God they had for each other. And Jesus came with a love that's infectious. And lastly, Laodicea had to be a witness for Christ. And Jesus has always been a witness for the truth. You see, what Jesus is describing is what he needs his bride to be. He's the bridegroom coming back for a pure and spotless bride. But more than that, for a bride that has prepared herself. And Jesus is saying, there are aspects of my character that I want to see mirrored in you. And it could be, it could be easy to look at that and say, well... That seems like Jesus is demanding a lot of his church. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. This is not an easy ride. In fact, Jesus asks the impossible of us. Because when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he talks about us coming to maturity, and he describes that as coming to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, that his church will come to the full measure of who Christ is. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those words, they sound great, but then I look around me at the world and at the church and say, how are we going to get there? Well, thankfully, that's his job. Our job is to be obedient and to follow him and to do what he asks us to do. He will bring his fullness into his church And we mustn't feel the pressure to be perfect. Instead, the answer lies in letting him live his life through us. It always ever was only that that Jesus required of us. That's why Paul writes to the Galatians and he said, I don't live anymore. It's no longer Paul that lives. I died. Paul is dead. Now, I'm a resurrected saint of Jesus Christ. And now Christ lives his life through me. And if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be, we need to be those who live, let Jesus live his life through us. And all of these wonderful things that we see in Christ, we will start to see in ever-increasing fullness in the church. You see, the church that goes astray is the church that stopped looking at Christ. That was the problem in each case. In each case, the church had stopped looking at Christ and was either looking at the world and trying to shape itself and adapt to the world around it, or they were looking within and just looking at what they were doing. And we as God's people need to be those who are looking at Christ and above all things are seeking him for a fresh revelation of who he is. The more we see him, the more we'll become like him. We'll be transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. I think we're going to have a fantastic time going through this series. I hope you've enjoyed this morning. This morning's just been a taster. God has got so much to say to us and for us to have a fresh revelation of the church of Christ in all its fullness as we look at our wonderful King. Amen? I'm going to invite Rich and the musicians to come up. We're going to have a song just to finish now. And just as we're singing, I just want to encourage you to look to the Lord and say, Lord, would you give me Would you give us, as your people, a fresh revelation of who you are and in so doing, who we are and who you're going to make us to be. Amen.
Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.